Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 772. What do you got on the Nerds Community Corkboard? Uh, uh, there's a group that uh, messages a few times. I'm fascinated by them. They're the Funny Music Project. They're mm-hmm. a bunch of guys who decided they are just going to continuously write funny songs, which is a thing that I know we all know and love. And they just did their thousandth song. Wow. Since forming, they have now done a thousand songs. So that's a real milestone, and I'm amazing, amazed by these guys. Uh, so if you go to the Fump, the F-U-M-P dot com, you can go and check out the thousand songs that the Funny Music Project has written. And uh, the website, there's a lot to take, but these guys are super talented, and it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. It's very, very neat to watch somebody who's really doubled down and like, I'm going to make a thing, and then I'm going to make a thousand things. Matt, what do you do you have anything coming up? Uh, December 30th at the Brea Improv, Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs. I love that Brea Improv. And uh, December 31st, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, Melrose Improv. NYE. Oh. Melrose Improv. Nice. Mm-hmm. Matt Myra, this episode of the podcast, I am. Uh, I, I was pretty flipped out to have this person on. She is legitimately in my pantheon of She's idols. A big deal. And I got to meet her. This is Kathleen Kennedy. And Kathleen Kennedy is, I mean, just go to her IMDb page and, and, and you will find that she is responsible for probably all of the things that you love. I mean, it surely couldn't be, I don't know, let's say, Gremlins and the Indiana you know, Jones I, I movies. Went, I went through and, the list with Oh, her. that's right, you did Yeah, I, that. I went that's, through the list. It, it's insane. It, and also, uh, so I got to meet her when I was moderating the Star Wars panel, the Force Awakens panel at Comic-Con. It's just an amazing group of people. JJ's really great and funny. Brian Burke's great and really funny. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan and, uh, and then Kathleen and her husband Frank Marshall were there. And I don't know, we all, we just hit it off. And, you know, even in this kind of like stressful, oh, we got to make sure this panel's all done right. You know, they're very meticulous about it and, and very thorough and great. And, but there was a lot, like everyone was laughing and fun and funny. And, and it just elevated my level of appreciation for her. And, and I sort of just blurted out, well, can I ever talk you into coming on the podcast? And she so almost seemed a little taken aback, like, oh, uh, sure, uh, sure, why not? You know, like it. I don't know because I I really did blurt it out like a like a fanboy. <laughs> I do, can you please come on my podcast sometime? And uh, and she did. We you know during one of the Star Wars press days, she sat down with us, and she's someone that I would want to talk to for hours and hours and hours. I, I actually emailed I emailed her office and I was like, you know, you think Kathleen would be interested in being a leadership mentor? Like, could I maybe? <laughs> So uh, listening to that's adorable. Someone I did. I really <laughs> did. That that's that's amazing. Listening to someone who started as some sort of uh, assistant to powerful people and then rose up to run Star Wars. I was very invested in this interview. <laughs> She's fantastic and just a wonderful person. Kyle, uh, powerful people. This the difference. He can have us both killed. He's at that level. No, no, no. You got to go be her assistant. Is what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> uh huh. I got to update my resume. <laughs> Here's the Nerds Podcast number 772 with Kathleen Kennedy. Katie, roll the squace. <laughs> now entering Nerdist.com.
This is our guest book, and uh, most of the people who've been on the podcast in the last maybe year and a half, two years have signed it, and it's pretty substantial. I mean, it's pretty intense. So there's barely any room left, but there's room for you. You're going to have to pick by the end. You can either sign on Billy Crystal's page or Tom Hanks's page. I'll sign on Tom's. You're going to sign on Hanks's page. You want to do it afterwards? Okay. Because then, because what if you hate this and you're like, well, I'm not going to sign your stupid book, and then you knock the mic down <laughs> and flip the table. Happen, okay. Chris. All right. I just want to make sure. We're in a weirdly large theater, which mm-hmm. feels like an operating theater. Yeah. This feels like an old timey, really the Nick operating I'm glad theater. I'm, it's not the other way around. That <laughs> would be very distracting. <laughs> I just, this feels like, well, I, fl- I flew in from Boston this morning because I, I, I did a stand up at MIT last night. And then, uh, and then, but what does I'm, that require? Stand up at MIT? Yeah. Just a microphone and a handful of college kids. And to, what are you talking about? Um, you know, it's funny. When you do a college, I, like, I had to carve out a lot of the more adult themes. And I don't mean, like, dirty. I just mean, like, I'm getting married next year. It's just, like, things that are more, that are outside their reference zones. Mm-hmm. So I, I find that a lot of times... I'll ju- if I need to, I'll just chuck the material and just start talking to people in the audience because the college kids love it when you make it about them. Mm-hmm. So that's all it was. Oh, but they're MIT kids. They're pretty, they're pretty. They're yeah, pretty smart. smart. Yeah. Um, I, I am. Uh, <laughs> I accidentally <laughs> wandered into the Seek convention. Uh, you mean just, here? Yes. Just there's there's a convention of of, of Indian Sikhs. Oh. Uh, and I was not in the right <laughs> space at all. And a security guard was like, "I don't think you're supposed to be in here." And I go. I don't think are these people cosplaying? And he's like, no, 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 no. This is a this is legitimately a completely separate thing going on. That's so it was really it was like I almost wandered into the wrong thing. But you guys have put together a really amazing um, and and I and I don't know how you were able to do it. A a nice low key relaxed environment for this thing that obviously is everyone's freaking out over so much. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It is low key. I mean, even wandering around. Seeing people, nice. How were you guys? Man- how did you well, manage to do that? Uh, we just got really tired. <laughs> <laughs> I know, which is the end of the year too. It's the end of the year. Yeah. Um, no, I, I. I mean, how did we manage to do it? I think it, it was all part of the plan. Obviously, leading up to the premiere of the movie on the fourteenth, and I think genuinely, I do think everybody is really tired. They're pretty exhausted. And I know J.J.'s been working nonstop, 24-7, yeah. getting the movie finished, which we just turned over about five days ago. So it, everything's been moving right to the last Every minute. once in a while, I'll just text him and I'll go, I'm really excited about your space movie. <laughs> and he's, and he, he doesn't have time, but he always texts me back. Oh, and no, says, he's amazing. I'm so excited. Yeah, and, hope, and well, we all are. Yeah. I mean, I, now we're at a point where we're 10 days out and we just can't wait to get into the theater and see people react to this. That's that's what you end up sort of shifting your thinking. It's not about looking at the movie anymore. It's about wanting to watch the audience. So This might be this might sound like a weird question, but it is related. Are you a good are if, if you have a present for someone, are you good at keeping it secret or do you do you like to spoil it? Well, I'm just going to give it to you because I can't wait. No, I'm pretty good at that. What I'm terrible at are surprise parties. For some reason, I always end up being the one that blows that. Where <laughs> I accidentally tell somebody or I mention something. <laughs> but I, for some reason, that's where my problem is. Well, the reason that I ask is because you, you know, you're a, a, of a small group of people who know what the movie looks like. A very small group of people. And how do you keep that in? It's, I mean, because I know you're a fan as much as you are involved, you know, on the creative side. You know, I think we all keep that in and keep it a secret because we know how important it is to everybody to want to walk in and be surprised. That's what I hear from people more than anything, is that they're like, I'm not reading anything. I don't want to know anything. I want it to be a surprise. And that's, I, I think that's why we've been able to do this, because everybody involved wants to protect that for themselves. Yeah. I don't normally – I've done almost 800 of these podcasts, and I don't ever look at notes ever. I just like to talk to people. These are just conversations. But you are someone that I have wanted on the podcast for so long. And I know when we got to do the, the, the panel at Comic-Con in San Diego, 
it was even just the pre stuff was so much fun before the actual panel. And I and at that time I said, please, I, I just please please come on. I would love to have you on. And you and you agreed. But you and I'm I'm sure people know this, but you are so responsible for so many things that people like myself uh that define what we love and you are at the backbone of all of it it's it's unbelievable so i just i know people know but just in case they don't know and i don't i'm not i don't mean to embarrass you but i just have to quickly go through just so people get a sense uh you're a producer on et you're on poltergeist twilight's on the movie temple of doom gremlins uh, Goonies, Back to the Future, Color Purple, Money Pit, which is still one of my favorite comedies of the 80s, American Tale, Amazing Stories, Interspace, Empire of the Sun, Batteries Not Included, Roger Rabbit, Land Before Time, Dad, Back to the Future 2, Always, Back to the Future 3, Gremlins 2, which I also loved, uh, Cape Fear, Hook, Tiny Toons, I mean, all the Amblin stuff, Fievel, uh, uh Schindler's List, the Bridges of Madison County. I'm just, I'm right, I'm trying to get through. There's like 60 or 70 of these. AI, Science, Jurassic Park 3, Seabiscuit, War of the Worlds, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Crystal Skull. I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on and on, all the way up through Star Wars Force Awakens. I mean, that is, do you understand how responsible you are for so much of our pop culture? Do you even have a concept? I do. Okay, the good. Only thing, the only thing that is, uh, disturbing now is when somebody comes in and meets with me and I'm really excited to meet them. I think, oh my God, this is a filmmaker I absolutely love. And they go, oh God, I'm so happy to meet you. I saw E.T. when I was five. <laughs> and I, then I get really depressed <laughs> because it's like these living clocks, sure. you know, that sort of document time going by. But because I don't feel any different. You know, I don't I, think anyone ever does. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, the most important thing. You never. I mean, you know, I get the same thing because I've been doing television since the midnight, since like 1994, and people go, "I used to watch you when I was in elementary school." I'm like, "Get out of my face! I don't, I don't appreciate your tone. Get off my lawn." Goonies is the one I hear about more than anything. It is amazing the power of that movie. I, I don't get what it is, but people come in and they go crazy about Goonies. It's the perfect movie for a kind of an ornery kid. Mm-hmm. And it's the perfect movie for someone to show. Like, it's, it's a movie that parents could show their kids and go, this movie affected me so much, and we can all watch it together, and the parents still love it, and then the kids get to discover it There's all over again. There's also an interesting sense of independence. At E.T. and Goonies, when you look back at those two movies, and certainly, you know, we didn't think about this when we were making it, but there are things happening in those movies, like when Stephen and I did the re-release on E.T., and you realize that the mom, you know, D. Wallace comes in and, and Henry's faking, Elliot's faking being sick, and she's like, oh, okay, honey, and then she gets in the car and drives away and just leaves him at home alone. <laughs> and you're like, wow, that's changed. That's a different time. Yeah, she would be arrested today. No, he'll probably be fine. Yeah. I'll just leave a bowl of water. Maybe there's an alien in the shed who will yeah, take care of him. Exactly. But it's, you know, at the start of it, you, did you have a sense of, hmm, there's really something special. Like when you, when, when you and Stephen first started to work together and uh, did, did you feel like we are, at the, we are standing at the precipice of what will be a long uh, a journey of amazing things that we're going to do? No, I don't, I, I don't think we had that kind of foresight. I think what we had was between Stephen and Frank and I, we loved doing what we did, and we couldn't believe how much fun we were having, especially when we all did Raiders of the Lost Ark. And when E.T. and Poltergeist, when we were developing those two movies, that was the time that we literally looked at one another and said, oh, Maybe we can do more than one movie at a time. That was our business model. <laughs> just, <laughs> just one just, one movie at a time. Oh, we were doing one movie yeah, at a time, but now we could, we could do more. So let's start a company. Well, how do you you know how do you divide your attention when you, especially in a business that I feel like is a lot of putting out fires? I assume yes. it's putting out fires. But so when you when you expand that exponentially, how do you then put out that many fires? Well, at once? you know, I. I, I I hesitate to say that's all it is, you know, and 
to me, the most fun I have is in the development process, putting the script together, casting, getting all the elements, figuring out the crew, who do we want to work with. So by the time you're making the movie and you're putting out fires, I don't really find that overly oppressive. And by then, we've usually got a pretty good team of people that we're not dealing with that on a, on a level that's too overwhelming. Right. But you guys have such a strong, you have such a strong point of view. Mm-hmm. E- even, because I know you worked on Twilight Zone, the movie, and I know, and it, you did the kick the can, you guys did the kick the can one, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and nestled, that was a long time ago. It was, but I still love that movie, the, yeah. the Scatman Carruthers. And so mm-hmm. even, even that, as compared to the other ones, still had this really... I don't know. There was just, there's something about an Amblin production where you just feel like, ah, oh, I just feel... I just feel good. Like I just feel good. Was that a was that a tonal? It was that tone intentional. Did you did you guys get together and say we want to create this kind of feeling? Well, I think that that was inherent in how all three of us looked at the stories that we wanted to tell. And I think it was later that we identified that we were often attracted to hopeful stories. There, the interesting thing about Stephen as a filmmaker, and he was really driving that company aesthetically is that he is not cynical there really isn't a cynical bone in his body and it took me a while to realize that that how genuine that was that that is how he sees the world yeah and i think that that's what's reflected and what people now look at and say were amblin movies because it captured that sensibility it also it captured a sense of Innocence. The world was a safer place to be, certainly than it is now. Sure. Um, all of those elements kind of infuse their way into the choices we were making about the stories we wanted to tell. We never set out to say we're going to develop an Amblin movie. We have a template for what an Amblin movie. It was only in retrospect that people started to identify what we were doing as being a genre right. in a sense. When you first started working with Stephen, were you am I getting this right? Were you supposed to be his assistant? I was his assistant. You were his assistant mm-hmm. on Raiders? Well, it started on 1941. Right, okay. And then at what point did he just say, "All right, I need you to do more. I need you to Well, we were developing the treatment on ET. And as I said, we were also doing Poltergeist at the same time, and that's when he said, "Well, why don't you produce this one?" And it was a $10 million movie. There's people who go, oh, my God, you did E.T. And it was, but it was a $10 million movie. It's a little movie. And it was sort of perfect as a stepping stone. And uh, little did we know that this was going to explode <laughs> into this big thing. But what, So what did, to go from that to all of a sudden producing, even though you say it's a $10 million movie, producing a film is still producing a film. So what... what, what, what did you, how did you approach it, and how quickly did you learn what to do if if you back up i had gone to film school i had i was a camera operator i worked in news i did lots of sporting events i'd been around production in san diego right in san San diego Diego, so when i came up to los angeles um i started working with john milius and then that's how i met steven because they were sharing a building he was at one end and steven was at the other end and i was sort of in the middle and while he was doing 1941, he would often give me these production projects. One of the things he wanted me to do was organize all the special effects for the movie, which I did. I'd gone actually up to his house. I was sort of freaked out because he asked me if I would, um, you know, type up all his notes and everything, and I I wasn't a very good typer, so I didn't (laughs) want him to see that I couldn't do that. So I said, why don't you just give me all your notes, and I'll take it back to the office and put it together. And he did. He gave me all these little scraps of paper that he had done drawings on and written notes on. I went back to the to Amblin. I spent the weekend really, you know, pouring my heart and soul into making these little booklets and getting everything all ready for the production meeting. And he ended up being so blown away by what I'd done to organize it that he was like, I'm going to give you more things to do. So that ended up really being my foray, if you will, into getting to know him and starting to work with him. And and very quickly, I just segued on to Raiders of the Lost Ark because that was going to be <laughs> his next movie. And there was it's not like you think about things today where there are these big production companies and lots of different people 
you know, working with directors. Steven didn't have anybody. So I had this unique opportunity to walk in and do everything. Anything and everything that needed to be done, I got to do. So it was, in a sense, an education that was accelerated way beyond what would probably happen today. And also, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, just just, uh, the background that you had even getting to that point, you know, there's something about... There's something about success that I think is a lot of, like, preparation meeting opportunity. It wasn't mm-hmm. like you didn't just trip. I mean, like, you, you, you actually, you, you seem, it sounded the way you described it. You sounded like, no, I was very focused, and I, I, was I very knew focused. this is what I wanted to do. And so, uh, but once you get on any film set, obviously, there's a learning curve, I assume, mm-hmm. you know, from working in television in San Diego to on the, the learning curve. So, you know, what was, the, what was something that, that, that struck you? right away that you realized, oh, okay, so producing a film really is all about this. Well, I had unbelievable mentors that I can really look at. The people stepped in and genuinely helped me. On E.T., there was a man named Wally Worsley. He was, he'd been a production manager in Hollywood for years. He knew everything. And what was great about Wally is he was there if I needed him, but he let me sink or swim. He was. He watched very carefully what I was doing. He stepped in on anything I needed. He was unbelievably supportive, but he also empowered me to, you know, take accountability and be the one on the front line. And that I owe him a great deal because I so easily could have been on that movie, and he did everything, and I just stood on the sidelines. But he he didn't do that. He really allowed me to to step into the job. So that was huge. And then by the time I went on to Raiders, that's when I met Frank. We didn't get married for nine years, and we didn't date until about six months after I had done E.T. But he was also somebody who had had a huge amount of experience. He'd been in the director's company with Francis Coppola and Friedkin and and, um, Peter Bogdanovich. He'd made nine movies with Peter. He'd worked with Orson Welles. He'd worked with Marty Scorsese. So I had Frank, I had Robert Watts, who had done all the Star Wars movies, <laughs> who was the production manager on Raiders. I had David Tomlin, who was considered probably one of the best ADs in the business. And every single one of those guys were unbelievable to me in giving me the support and guidance. And So in a sense, I had some of the best teachers in the business. But they obviously recognized that you were worthy of it. I mean, because if you, you know... They obviously saw, oh, this person's really focused and she's really capable and she's like, they wouldn't, like, people of that caliber aren't just going to start, you know, it's like, it's not really like a favor. They obviously recognized something about you. Well, you know, it's interesting because I now try to do the same thing with people that are trying to move up through the ranks. I think on a movie what you do is you look for people who you you recognize a sense of good taste, uh, storytelling ability, passion, um, and you give them things to do, and they do it well, because you have to use a lot of self-initiative in this business. And if you do it well, then they begin to gradually rely on you. Mm-hmm. That's the process. And then there's a, there's a um, out of that reliance, there's a trust that comes with that. And I certainly find that with people that I work with, is that I look for those things that I depend on, because you can't do this alone. Sure. And you try to find people who have similar sensibilities or people who will test you. One of the things that Stephen has brought up about me that I can reflect on because I've heard him say it, but I realize in myself I I do this, is I, I have a point of view. And as we would be talking about stories, be involved in development, be on the set, talking about things, I wasn't afraid to say what I thought. And... I realize now that um, that probably had a lot to do with getting me where I am today because there's a tendency with certainly people like a Stephen where people feel intimidated. Sure. And they stand back and they're not willing to say, hey, you know, I actually don't think that's such a great idea. Here's a thought of a different way to go, which is in fact what you're looking for when you're making a movie is you want people who have good ideas and and contributions to make you want them to speak up it only makes 
the the process better. And and a director's there to be the curator, in a sense, to say, yeah, great idea, I don't want to do that, or great idea, I I am going to go do that. And that's, that's where our relationship was forged, is that he began to depend on me to have opinions. Sure, because and then execute the, those. the more successful someone becomes, the more and more people are afraid of rocking the boat, and you're, but they're actually not doing any favors. Yeah. They're and, not they're doing not, any and, favors. and they're not going to grow if they're not going to you know, own their ideas. But that's a, good, that's a good leadership tip, too, is hearing you say that it's important to trust other people and that you need other people uh, you know, because some some people are such control freaks that they can't like I'll just do everything. Like, but you can't do everything. You no. have to know how to you have to know how to identify people who are experts and 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 just pull it all together. Mm-hmm. So, how do you when you say you know someone has to have good taste, which is just a thing that people it's like difficult. Maybe it can be learned. I don't know, but uh, but obviously you you know <laughs> you all had really good. Taste. How, what do you attribute that to? Is that just a happenstance of your personality? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it, it, one of the things that I find in the people that I love working with is that they're very eclectic and they're curious and they're interested in lots of different things and they're paying attention to what's going on in the world and they're growing as a human being and they're humanistic and they have values and and that's where a point of view comes from. Mm-hmm. And. I, I just I, I think that, that those kind of values are infused in the storytelling process. And I'm attracted to being around people like that. That's, that's where I think the collaborative art form is so exciting. Because you get a lot of people in the mix with strong opinions and well-read and interested in what's going on in the world um, and culturally astute. You're going you're gonna to have... You're going to have wonderful ideas come out of that. Right. But when you guys are... But it's still tough to know when you're making something, especially if you're so close to it. So in the process, how do you know? Is it just gut? I mean, obviously some of it's experience, but gut... No, I think it's gut. I think it's gut, and I think gradually over time it's experience. I think there's a huge value in experience because from movie to movie to movie, what it's taught me is... I know where to put my emphasis. I know where to concentrate my time. And I increasingly have learned where I can let others take the burden of certain responsibilities because focusing in on certain areas of the creative process become really, really important. And you want to devote as much time and energy to that as you can. What do you think is your best asset as a producer? Hmm. I suppose communication. I love getting to know the director, getting to understand a vision, um, understanding how to help people translate and execute what somebody's trying to visualize. Mm-hmm. That's oftentimes hard to articulate. And I think um, that's something I enjoy Doing, and I enjoy the process of understanding what that is, and then extrapolating from that, and finding a way to help communicate it to a large group of people that have to execute a vision. Is there anything that you can? Is there a story that you can think of that maybe is tied to a film where you thought, "Oh, and you know, in this one movie, we really wanted to do this, and we were really bummed that we couldn't do this thing for whatever reason." But in the end, it was actually better that we didn't because, you know. It, the movie was ended up being perfect the way that it was. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, in, in the broadest sense, I think what's interesting is Stephen, I watched, put limitations on himself after 1941. He didn't need a studio to put limitations on him. He put limitations on himself because he knew that if he had an open checkbook and he could do whatever he wanted, he wouldn't make a good movie, mm-hmm. that he needed boundaries. It's sort of like what you do in raising a child. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're going to be better behaved if they understand how to operate within boundaries. And I think movies are very much the same way. I think however the process is that you, you begin to p- create boundaries and you are forced to identify simple ideas inherent in storytelling, that, that obvious question you ask all the time, what are we trying to say? What is this about? Is the hardest question to answer 
every step of the way that you're making the movie. What is this about? What is this scene about? What is this story about? You literally have to say that out loud. And I find that that's, you know, often a process involved financially. You, you know, you never have enough time. You never have enough money. It doesn't matter how big the movie is. You're always trying to, to pull it into a framework. And I think it makes it better when you can do that. Sure. I think every movie improves from that process. Yes, because ba- the boundaries force you to be creative, too. This yeah, exactly always you force said. you to be creative. If you yeah. have all the money in the world, you can just yeah. throw money at stuff, then you're just, it won't be good. You're just wasting money. Mm-hmm. But th- So through the process, when you're saying, what are we trying to say? What are we doing here? Can that answer change? Is that okay if that answer changes? Oh, I think it should change. I think, I think every idea if it's going to get better, needs to constantly be evolving. It's an organic, living, breathing thing. It's, it's good, you know, to have storyboards or animatics or previs or whatever it is you want, but if you just use that religiously and you stop the creative process, once you start making a movie, it, again, you're, that's, that's, not, that's not what creating a movie is all about. It's about recognizing how to make those choices along the way because it's not an exact science. Sure. And if you're shooting outside or you're dealing with elements, there's always going to be things that are going to change what it is you have to do. You have to be flexible. And I find the best directors are the ones that are flexible, that actually love the challenge of things being presented that they have to solve creatively. And being flying by the seat of your pants is a part of the process of <laughs> that's when the magic happens. You know, it's that thing that everybody talks about between the frames because it's, it's it, that feeling of, oh my God, here's this incredible idea that just feels like it, you know, came out of thin air. It's usually like an athlete, it's at that point where you're so connected to the creative process that it just you channel whatever it is your solution you're looking for but it almost seems like you need you need the structure to be in place so that you can do that i'll tell you an example when i was sitting by the monitor one time with steven on jurassic and and uh about halfway through the movie we we killed the t-rex and (laughs) he was sitting there and he goes gath gath come here he goes we can't kill the T-Rex because he was, he'd been watching the movie in his head as we're shooting and we're, you know, we're halfway through the process and we're nearing this moment where we're going to shoot the scene where we kill the T-Rex. And he was like, no, the T-Rex is the star of the movie. We can't kill him. So we called the production designer, Rick Carter, over and we literally right by the monitor started to talk about how we were going to change the next scene and the entire end of the film as we were making it so that we could keep our oh my God. leading actor, the T-Rex, alive. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing to watch that movie and go, God, it's still... I mean, obviously, it, the story holds up, but all of the effects... Comp- I mean, it looks as good as anything... Yeah, and there, that's at a moment in time where we had created CG effects, in a sense. We'd done the first CG effect in young Sherlock Holmes when the stained glass window Mm -hmm. the soldier steps out into the church and that was actually done by John Lasseter and Ed Catmull oh wow and um, then we evolved three and a half four years later with Jurassic and at the time that we were getting ready to make the movie we were working with Stan Winston we were building full-size dinosaurs but Dennis Murin at, at Lucasfilm was or ILM was realizing that this new technology was making things more and more possible inside the computer. So each literally like each month we were saying, "Well, Dennis, how many how many shots do you think you could do?" And he at first he was like, "I think I can do 14." <laughs> like, okay, we'll take those 14. And then over time, it grew. And I don't remember the exact count, but I think there's approximately 90 shots oh in the God. whole movie. Everything else is puppeteering and full-size dinosaurs. But it's a movie that feels like it's a big effects movie full of, you know, a thousand CG shots. But it's, in fact, under 100. And they're just, But they're just in the right spots. Yeah. 
to carry they, you through. The thing that was great was we used the computer to do any movement that we just absolutely couldn't physically do. So when the, when the raptor jumps up on the table in the kitchen, that's a CG shot. But everything else is puppeteering. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it, it's still, it's the perfect mix. And even back then, I'm sure they must have realized, like, well, if it's too much CG, it's going to... No, because we didn't have an idea of what that was. We didn't even know if it was going to look good. <laughs> so what are you going on at that point? Just like, well, we'll just cross our fingers. I mean, everyone seems to yes, know what they're doing. We were, we were hoping. We were, that was a scary proposition. But we did have full-size puppets and full-size dinosaurs, and we, we had other options. But everything about the CG process, we were literally, it was, it was all unfolding wow. as we were making that film. So, Is there a movie that ended up becoming something completely different than what you thought or had intended from the beginning? Or were you guys pretty, pretty clear all the way through about each one? I think we, you know, we've always been fairly clear. The execution is always something I find exciting when you open a script and you say, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? But by the time you're shooting, you know, we usually had a pretty good idea of what the execution would be. Is there a movie that is particularly personal for you that you love, that did that really, that you gravitate toward? I think probably um, E.T. because it was the first thing I had produced on my own. I, I, I there Everything about that still resonates with me. So I would I hesitate to compare because they're all different experiences, but that one probably the most. It's so interesting to think of a time where someone didn't go, well, I guess let's make three of these. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, let's just keep making these forever. It's like, it just... It just stand, It just it stands alone as this perfect yeah. movie. And, you know, it's interesting because there were a lot of conversations later on where people have, in the studio, have approached Stephen and said, you know, would you ever make another E.T.? And that's the one that he says over and over again, never. Yeah. It, that is on its own. It will always remain on its own. Because it just, it's such a, it's just a special, perfect mm. thing. I mean, I don't even know what... I don't even know what you could tell about that again. It's not like a continuing saga, really. No, no, and it was so personal for him. But you did get to see the you did get to see the ETs. There was there was a scene in one in in one of the Star Wars, and it was a uh, was it Attack of the Clones? There was one where there there was basically the big like the big Senate scene, mm -hmm. and there were little aliens all in the background. Yeah. And there seemed to be like a few of them buried in there somewhere. Well, I, maybe George was paying homage to Stephen with that. I don't know, but they're not ET's not in the Senate. No, 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 no. But <laughs> let's not go there. Chris. No, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, that's because so so that brings me to the it's like a movie like Roger Rabbit, which I still mm. hold as. I mean, I know with uh, with Wreck It Ralph, they did it a little bit in terms of like crashing a lot of IP together. But the the legal marvel of who framed Roger Rabbit is so unfathomable in today's <laughs> yeah. climate. It is. When I look true. back and I go, how did they get Daffy and Don how did they how? How? How do you make that movie? You know, it's funny because I don't think anybody was struggling with that then. I mean now all of that has become so much more complicated on the big business side of movie making. But when we were doing that, it wasn't, that wasn't our focus. The real focus was how were we going to technologically blend these animated characters into live action? That was, that was what everybody was focused around. And how did you, how did you start solving that problem? Well, again, I mean, that's Bob is, Bob Zemeck is just brilliance. He, the thing that I think Bob, and he still is doing it, the more complicated something can be, the more excited Bob gets. <laughs> and the more somebody says, you can't do that, he wants to figure out how to do it. So that, again, was a process much like Jurassic Park, where we started down this road of trying to figure out how we were going to do the execution with ILM. And we were making it up as we went along. We didn't really know. And thank God, the studio with Jeffrey Katzenberg and Eisner at the time, were they were supportive. They really, really 
you know, took a flying leap and said, we'll let you try to figure out how to do this. About halfway through the movie, we had to explain that it was far more complicated than we thought <laughs> and ended up being twice as expensive as we thought as a consequence. But they, they hung in and supported us. It was us. so worth it. I mean, I, you know, just jumping around a little bit, but I did the uh, – I, I always go to Halloween Horror Nights at Universal. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, – I'm, I'm saying this because it's important to the story, but they gave us a guide to sort of go around so we could go through everything really quickly, which is a pretty spoiled but fun way to do it. Uh, but we were able to kind of walk around and just look at the – Town of uh, Hill Valley, basically the town square from Hill Valley, and mm-hmm. the courthouse is—it's the structure is there, but the courthouse is kind of hidden behind mm-hmm. these stratified layers of other productions that have been on top of it. But I mean, that's another one where do you have any idea what you're making as you're making it, or are you just going, "Well, this"? I think this is fun. I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, people will like this. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. <laughs> is that everybody got caught up in believing that they were having a good time and that it meant something to them, but we had no idea. I mean, with both Roger Rabbit and Back to the Future, which were both movies that um, it really were brainchilds of, of Bob's, and with Back to the Future, even the title was something that the studio was questioning and saying, that doesn't mean anything, nobody's going to know what that means. (laughs) Actually, I have a memo still where they were suggesting that we call it Spaceman from Pluto. (laughs) Like, what? Because you remember Marty McFly stands in, he's got the comic book? Yes. So, no, it was insane conversation. Yeah, Spaceman from Pluto. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now... And the total inside joke, and the, the way that I'll know that people listen to this podcast is when I refer to Back to the Future, I'm going to start calling it Spaceman Space from, from Pluto. Pl- Spaceman from Pluto. It's got to be Spaceman from Pluto. <laughs> I mean, that production, too, because you started with an entirely different Marty McFly and then kind of yeah. had to start over. That was really bold. I mean, I have to say, it, the decision, we had always modeled the character after Michael J. Fox. And I think as soon as, you know, no offense to Eric who was trying his best but Bob realized week after week after week that he just wasn't finding Marty McFly in what he was shooting and he finally came to us and said um, we got to make a change so Frank and Bob and I decided we would go sit down with Steven and convince him that we had to make a change we were six weeks into shooting how do you convince so, someone six yeah, weeks into shooting but we were you know young and fearless <laughs> so we went in and we made the case and then we showed the footage and and steven rightly said let's get sid scheinberg in here and he was the head of the studio at the time and so we we looked at all the footage with sid and he paced around the room looking at us like we were all insane and he said, you people are crazy. <laughs> and he said, but, you know, if, um, if I'm right and I support you, then I look like a genius. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but then there's a certain amount of you have to be willing to take blame, too, yeah. right? That's yeah. part of that's a part. No, of it is part of I think that's, you know, owning and taking responsibility for what you're doing when you're taking risks, creative risks, in trying new things and... And with any kind of innovation, that's part of the job. It's, you know, that's, you work hard not to be a failure, but you have to be willing to fail in order to to try and do new things. And I think it's something I still think about all the time. It's it's part of what, um, it's part of the, the risk of innovative filmmaking is to be willing to keep doing that well how do you sleep at night i mean how do you i mean being fearless obviously it has some emotional toll on you i would imagine so how are you able to when you have all these when you're kind of juggling all these big things you know how are you able to separate yourself from that when you go home um well to some extent i probably don't entirely separate myself because my work i think everybody nowadays because we carry around cell phones and computers and oh, everything. Yeah. We can't completely disconnect. But, you know, I I have two daughters. I have a life. I have lots of other interests. I, I really try to pour myself into that, and that's how I disconnect from work. But um, I don't know. I just, I've, I think I've always been fearless. I, 
I'm exhilarated by that. I want to try new things. Because I, I think there's a thing in our culture now where it's, and I'm guilty of it too, it's like, no, there's, there's valor in working yourself until you can't stand up anymore and, dry, and grinding yourself. And I don't know, the older I'm getting, I'm like, I, is there though? Like, is it, isn't the goal to be happy and to enjoy things? I think that that absolutely is the goal. I mean, every time I'm involved in a movie, the part of the the experience is I want to go investigate the place I'm in. If I'm traveling, I want I, it's meeting the people that you meet, and that doesn't necessarily mean just the people that are working on the movie, but getting to know you know people in extenuating circumstances whether like for instance I'm working in London now I've now over 30 years made movies in London I have as many friends in London as I do here so it's really wonderful to go into the city and and I have these connections to people who I haven't some I haven't seen in a while that I get to reconnect with some that are in theater some that are in art galleries some are running restaurants and that's part of life. That's the great thing. And to be able to travel and I get excited about all of it. You sound that's... pretty balanced. And you especially <laughs> – so just a couple more questions as we're sort of wrapping this up. But uh, how, how, is it, how has it been taking over Lucasfilm and sort of – seeing... It's been fantastic. I mean I will say this is – for anybody sitting out there saying that sounds like a pretty cool job, it is a really cool job. <laughs> it's a really cool job. And I got very lucky, and I walked in with some amazing people that were already there because George had a thriving company, and now that the Disney company has bought it, it's thriving on steroids. I mean, what we've been able to do in a relatively short amount of time because they've been so supportive and so willing to to give us whatever resources we want and need. The fact that I get to sit in meetings and talk about games that are being developed. I get to talk about the theme parks that are being developed. I get to be involved in the creative process with those. Um, Consumer products was thriving inside Lucasfilm already, and it's even more so inside Disney. So our executive team, every time we get together and we, we have this group of people that are about, I see about 35 people, where one of the things I don't come out of corporate culture, so I'm, I, I don't necessarily look at this as lines of business. That's actually a term that I've learned in mm-hmm. the last three years. To me, everybody in the room should have something to say, whatever it is. I don't care if somebody at, in ILM is commenting on something to do with the game or somebody inside the story department is commenting on animation or commenting on the feature we're about to make. The great thing is that everybody in that room has a contribution they can make, and we just pool ideas. We even created the development department so that all the people working in development touch everything. They sit in a game meeting. They sit in a movie meeting. They sit in an anim- animation meeting. They sit in a parks meeting. So the way, that way, the people who know what we're doing with the saga films, for instance, or the standalone films, they can sit in a game meeting, and they know what we're doing. It's not like, oh, that, you know, that's the development department that does the movies. I don't know anything about that. Right. They know. They've been a part of those discussions. So I find that that's how I make movies. So I sort of, I've sort of taken all the structure and the model of how I tend to set up a movie, and I've just applied that to how to run the company. And it's, it's proved to be really wonderful. Well, lastly, what are you most excited about? I mean, is it, is it, are you excited for Force Awakens to come out? Are you excited for that to happen so that you can then get into the saga films and the rest? Right of- now, I'm unbelievably excited to have Force Awakens open because <laughs> just being able to go sit and see it with an audience, just like everybody else, I want that sense of community and excitement in, in seeing that movie and sort of witnessing the fact that Star Wars movies are going to start to get made again. I it's think so that crazy. That's so I mean, fantastic. Yeah, someone said to me, like, where does it... I mean, are you worried with more... I go, worried? Why would I not want more of a thing that I love? <laughs> yeah. Like, why would I not want a ton of that? So No, and the amazing thing is every single person, I don't care what they're doing in the process, comes to this as a fan. So you get this incredible passion from every single person that's making a contribution. 
So how can it fail? Yeah. It can't fail. Well, you guys have done everything right as far as I can tell, and I'm super excited. I just bought a BB-8 wallet at a GameStop yesterday because I couldn't <laughs> stop myself. Uh, <laughs> I bought this Akbar shirt yesterday. I'm like, That's I'm already, really I'm just buying Star Wars. Yeah. St- I can't stop. No, I have to admit, I was in Venice about three weeks ago, and I walked by this window, and there's this really cool Death Star T-shirt, and I went in and bought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were rocking a pretty cool Vader thing at Comic Con. Yeah, yeah, this no, year. I like that. Pretty, yeah, pretty red. A- uh, oh, is there? I mean, this is outside of something. I don't know if you know about this or care about this, but is there going to be another Gremlins movie? Because there's, like, tittering. You know, Stephen and Dick keep having, Dick Donner, keep having a conversation about it. So, didn't, wasn't Zach Galligan at some sort of a thing yes, and said, I yes, mean, you know, I, I know. think there's going to be They keep level. talking about it. I don't know. Maybe I'll go in and say, you know, bring it into Lucasfilm and we'll get it made. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, I this is so wonderful to sit down and talk yeah, to you. And, to talk and to I you legitimately too. hope, did you ever write a book? No. If, I really hope you do at some point because I, I really think that – I know people know who you are, but I think the way that you seem to do things time and time again and the balance that you seem to have, you're such an – I believe you're such an amazing role model that I really hope that you share the wisdom of what you've learned – with people in a in a larger sense because I think it would be very beneficial. Well, so thanks. I don't know, maybe you thought about it, just something to think about. But right. uh, I'll think about that. All right, I'll definitely. I, think I mean, about it. I feel like you're a little busy at the moment. Yeah, but I was when you're not say, doing I, that, it's not something I can really turn my attention to. Right yeah. now. <laughs> but at some point. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kathy, okay. for being here. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Good to talk to you. You too. Okay. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.